Hello, I'm Scott Miller, host of Franklin Covey's weekly On Leadership series, now the world's largest subscribed leadership newsletter that comes out every Tuesday via your email. For those of you who aren't yet subscribing and you're listening to this on your favorite podcast platform or perhaps you stumbled upon it somewhere on the web or at franklincovey.com, you can subscribe. It's complimentary. Visit franklincovey.com and click on the On Leadership button. Subscribe yourself, your parents, your kids, your neighbors, your brother, all of your colleagues in the office place. We'd love to have you dip in every week where on Tuesday morning we set out a different interview with a different thought leader. Sometimes it's a four-star general. Sometimes it's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Sometimes it's somebody you may not have heard of because they're not a household name yet, but they've paid the price to put the reps in to become expert at a topic that influences and improves our roles as leaders. And today is a day that's kind of a, a hybrid of all of those. We have someone who's a bit of a podcast star. She's a best-selling author. You see her on TV all the time. I'm delighted to welcome Jean Chatsky, who is the editor of NBC's Today Show for the financial segment. She also is a multi-best-selling uh, author and the host of her own podcast called Her Money. Jean Chatsky, welcome to On Leadership. Hi, Scott. Nice to be with you. Hey, delighted you're joining us today, Jean. You and I have had a chance to interview um, a couple of times over the decade that we've known you. You've been a longtime partner with the Franklin Covey Company, and I see that you're joining us today from looks like maybe your vacation home that I know has been well-earned because you're a saver <laughs> and an investor. Talk to us a bit about where you are today. Uh, yeah, I am. I'm uh, I'm in Long Beach Island, New Jersey, which is a uh, place that I have loved since I was a child and uh, fortunate enough to have a place here that my husband and I come on weekends. That's fantastic. Jean, I know everybody recognizes your name from either subscribing to your Her Money podcast, have read one of your, I think, maybe dozen books. How many books have you authored now, Jane? Jean? Oh, you're 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 exaggerating on my behalf. Eleven, eleven, <laughs> No, I'm just forecasting because I'm sure there's probably one more in you. And of course, everybody recognizes <laughs> Eugene from your years at the Today Show. How many years have you been a, a member of the Today Show? About twenty-five. That's amazing run. I mean, are you you're right there with Al Roker? I mean, who who's been there longer <laughs> than you? Anybody? Exactly. I think I think I'm I'm pretty much up there. But, I know. Uh, but don't tell. Well, congrats. So so Thanks. everyone, of course, wants to know. So let's check this off the interview segment. What's it like to be part of the Today Show family? Why do you think it's been so enduring? We watch it every morning for at least fifteen to twenty minutes in the morning. Why do you think your show has done so well? The the the, the whole show at, at um, NBC. You know, when I first started doing the show, I was comfortable there because I felt like I knew the hosts um, because they were active presences in my um, bedroom, typically, yeah, right. every morning. And and in the years that have followed, I've been the recipient of a lot of people saying the same thing to me. I feel like I know you because you come into my home all the time. And I think that is the secret. I think when when people are just with you all the time, even if you don't um, personally know them, you feel like you know yeah, them, right. and that um, inspires the continuity. Well, I can tell all of our listeners, you are the same off camera as you are on camera. I remember our discussion in a New York hotel room a couple of years ago it was just after Dr. Covey had passed, and we. Uh, 
We did an interview and it was delightful to get to know you. Gene, for those who will be interested in carrying on this conversation after today, we'll talk about your podcast in a moment. Remind us which days you appear and around what times on the NBC Today show. You know, it's pretty sporadic. Is it? Um, and, and sometimes it's in the 8 o'clock hour. Mostly it's in the 10 o'clock hour with yep. uh, Hoda and Jenna yep. these days. Right. Um, but it, it's a four-hour show, so um, you never can tell. It depends what's in the news. <laughs> Well, it's always a delight to see you on my wife and I look for you. Jean, let's get in. You have a new book out called Women With Money, your 11th book on your way to 12. Uh, one of the things that caught me about this book is it's not just for women. I, I read this book, of course, as a part of the interview. Uh, I have it underlined and tabbed in a bunch of different places. What I think captivated me the most that was ubiquitous regardless of gender or role in life was the importance of knowing your money story, right? We, pay, we tend to pin a lot of things on our parents. Uh, some probably justifiably, some not. But will you expand on the importance of everybody thinking about understanding, telling yourself and owning your own money journey, your money story? Sure, so if you've thought about money at all, you probably know that it's pretty emotional, um, that you behave with money, around money, in various ways, some of which you may not even understand. And the root of a lot of that is in what we call your money story. And that is how the way that you were raised impacts the way that you behave with money and feel about money today. And it's not what you were taught in childhood. It's not the fact that you got an allowance or that your parents put jars on the dresser for saving and spending and giving and tried to teach you lessons that way. It's more of what was in the atmosphere. It's more of sort of what, what was felt, whether there was tension whenever finance came up, whether when the visa bill or the paycheck landed, there was an argument whether there was joy or sadness around the holidays, those sorts of messages, even if nobody um, ever it, it communicated to you about them directly, made their way into you and impact the way that you feel about money and, and behave with money um, to this day. And if you haven't taken time to dig into them, to understand them, then you're not understanding enough about who you are and why you're behaving as you are and maybe what's in this, the, what's standing in the way of you achieving some of your goals. Gene, I think it is so visceral what you just said because I was raised probably like you in an upper middle class family in the 60s and 70s and my father worked full time. My mom was fortunate to be a stay at home mother. My mother managed the family money. My father earned it. My mother was very disciplined. She was raised in a fairly uncertain financial family. And although my mother was very organized with the jars and the envelopes, I remember one year in my teens that my mother was counting on my father to bring home, I guess, probably the 1st of December, the money from the Christmas Club account. For those who are too young to remember, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you could, uh, with your employer, put money into an account every year, every week, right? And then I'm guessing in early December, you got that money to help pay for your Christmas gifts. And yeah. every year, my mother counted on that. And for one year, I don't know why my father hadn't done it. I'm, I'm guessing because there was miscommunication. I can remember this, uh, the disappointment and the 
the sadness, the pain my mother at learning my father hadn't put the money. I don't think he was siphoning it off. I think he just either had forgotten or maybe she forgotten. But I can remember to this day the sadness that my mom, because she'd made commitments, she was counting on the money. And I share that not to humiliate my parents, but to say, I'm sure I'm doing some of the same things as my wife to our children, because we're mindful of that. Is there something similar in your own story that you might share that had an impact on you in terms of how you were raised and the subtle messages in your own family? Yeah, and I don't think I realized these things until later when I was growing up. My my father was a college professor. Um, My mother was in and out of the workforce, mostly when we were young. She was a stay-at-home mom. She did some substitute teaching. Um, There was um, certainly enough money, but there wasn't a lot of money. And I think I I didn't quite... um, uh, My mother was incredibly uh, frugal. I mean, she did it in a way that... Um, that I don't think we as children necessarily realized what was going on, but I I remember um, going on a trip um, one summer when uh, my father wasn't teaching. We we took an extended road trip. We went out to the Grand Canyon and and all sorts of places around the country. And and I remember uh, not going out to lunch, but instead going to a supermarket and buying a loaf of bread and a package of Oscar Mayer bologna and my mom making sandwiches out of the back of the car. Um, and and those that that uh, as I was writing this book and, and has come back to me in, in other instances as well, when I sort of realize um, the lengths my parents went to to make us feel like there was enough without feeling like, um, but, but understanding that there wasn't a tremendous amount. Jean, give us some practical advice on how do we uncover and own and unpack and maybe learn from and leave behind our money story from our parents? What, what practical tips would you give us to say, you know, sit down and do this exercise and really yeah, understand and the impact? There, there are a bunch of questions in the book, but yeah. it, it is a sense of asking yourself some questions. What messages about money do you remember your parents passing along? Do you remember there being tension in the household, there being fights in the household? Do you um, do you recall conversations behind closed doors? How what was the feeling like? about money where you grew up. And then just like you have to understand these things about yourself, if you are living your life with another person, if you've got a partner or a spouse, it's really, really helpful to understand the same things about them. Because as you're trying to build a life together, if one of you is pushing against the other, it may be because of these reasons for childhood that you haven't unpacked. So, Gene, you're one of the nation's, if not world's most well-known financial advisors, right? I mean, you, you uh, although you don't counsel people on their investments per se, you're a, a broad, wise, well-published expert. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that you find people have about money and the role it plays in their life? I think the biggest misconception has to do with um, has to do with the fact that we don't really understand 
money at its true nature and, and that it's a tool, you know, at the heart, it's a tool and it's a tool that we should be using to achieve the lives that we want. Um, we give money a lot of power. We give it a lot of meaning. Really, it is just this um, tactical element that if you strip all of the, that other stuff away, you should be able to control in order to bring about the life that you want. When I was reporting this book, I asked hundreds of women the same question. I asked them many questions, but one of them was just, what do you want from your money? And what I heard in return was safety, security, stability, savings. And then once we got past those initial sort of grounding elements that said to me, I am okay. Then we could get on to the other things in life. I want college for my kids. I want to make sure my parents are taken care of. I want enough money to last as long as I do. I want um, to be sure that uh, I, my mortgage is paid off by the time I retire. We got to all of those things. But the initial elements, the savings and the safety and the security, are so elemental, particularly for women. I don't even think they're wants. I think that they're needs. Gene, I've read uh, four or five of your 11 books. Forgive me for not having the rest, but I've read four or five of them. One of the reasons why I liked this the most and chose to interview on this topic, and by the way, you are our first financial expert on our entire series. We've had about 60 guests over the last 60 weeks, and we held the spot for you because you've been Thank so you, busy. Scott. Well, it's true, because you've, had, you've ha had so many other interviews, so we held this spot for you. Although the book is titled Women With Money, and it's aimed at women, it is broader than that, because I'm, I'm, I'm a guy, and I have three boys, and I'm married, obviously, to a wife. And I found it so helpful because the vulnerability that a lot of these women that you got together in these meetings was so relatable, regardless of your gender. What are some of the things that surprised you about the fears and the needs that specifically the women in your sort of um, your weekly meeting confessed? Well, well, let's come back to that need for, for security and stability first. I, I, I've seen a lot of research um, over the years on the reluctance of women to invest, the fact that we leave too much money in savings accounts, even beyond emergencies, um, when we should be putting that money in the markets. And when I heard the women that we interviewed express this desire for safety and security over and over and over again, it not only um, really came to life for me, came to light for me, but it made me take another look at myself. Um, I mean, some of those stories and vulnerabilities that you mentioned in the book are mine. Uh, mm -hmm. I, in sitting down to write this book, it, it very quickly became much more personal than anything else that I've ever written. And I, I realized in particular, around my 40th birthday, I, uh, I got divorced. Uh, I turned 40, which in and of itself was a, uh, a, a bit difficult for me. I lost my dad. Um, and I, when I looked back on my financial behavior, realized I was, I was, Typical. I was more than typical. Um, at that point, uh, this was 2005. I, um, 
I was leaving the house that I shared with my former husband and moving. And I was bound and determined that I was going to buy something. I was not going to rent because I wanted to own it. I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't have to move again unless it was my choice. Um, and, and this was 2005. So real estate prices were through the roof. It would have made so much more sense to rent something than to buy it. But I wouldn't even hear of it because that to me did not feel safe and secure. I, at the same time, was saving like a crazy person. Um, there, I put a lot of money just into savings of various types because nothing else made me feel as safe and, and as secure. And even when I looked at my car, I, I, I was and, and continue to this day to, to drive a Volvo station wagon. Um, you know, with every possible airbag and, and, uh, and safety bell and whistle. And the problem with this, particularly for women, is that this overwhelming need for safety and security actually gets in the way of achieving financial security. Because what we know is that if we are going to um, have enough money to last as long as we do to, to really go the distance, then we need to be investing on a regular basis. And so a good chunk of this book is really devoted it to helping inspire investing confidence, getting, getting women to understand that we can be, we are in many cases, fantastic investors. And in order to do that, you never have to pick an individual stock in your life if you don't want to. You can asset allocate your way into a diversified portfolio that will do all, all the important work. Jean, let's speak to uh, the broad audience that's listening to the On Leadership series, whether they're watching our interview or one of the millions listening to a podcast. What advice would you give the 20-year-old Jean Chatsky? That, now that you've learned that, what advice mm -hmm. would you give the 20-year-olds out there? What's the one or two things that they could do fairly easily, whether they're still in college or just coming out of college, that could have a significant impact on their, on their financial future 30 years from now, 40 years from now? Uh, item number one, save something. Um, every person that I've ever interviewed who I've given a chance to say, what would you tell your 20-year-old your self? What would you suggest? Start investing from, from day one. Just get in there. And even if you only have $25 to do it on a regular basis, just, just start. It's, it's, the, it's the habit of saving and investing that is so important and, and that will carry you through your lifetime. Um, item number two, no matter how much money you think you should be making, ask for more. Um, because the answer can be no, but it's always going to be no if you don't ask. So figure out what you think you should be earning and then ask for more than that. And those two things combined will, will set you on a course for a financial future that is secure. Gene, your advice to the 20-year-olds out there is invest something, $25 a week. And you're saying kind of regardless of your income, your debt, your school loans, invest in something because the habit over 40 years is what's going to bring you to a better place in your retirement. 
Correct. And and when you look at the money that we invest in, and many of the questions that I get are financial trade-off questions. Should I put more money in my 401k or should I pay off my credit card debt? Should I pay off my student loans or should I put money into a mortgage? When, when we look at all of those things, what we're really looking at is the return on our money. And by and large, especially if you're getting a match on that money from an employer, but but even if you're not, the, the return on your money that you are gonna get from investing it over time is often greater than the return that you get um, paying off a lot of different debts, right. mortgage debts, right. student loan debts, um, not necessarily high interest rate credit card debts. Right. If you've got those, you've got right. to make an effort to whale on them as well. You're saying generally the interest return on your investment is always going to outweigh the interest you're paying on most debt. Exactly. Right. I want to go to 30s and 40-year-olds, but let's, let's rewind a little bit. What advice would you give people like me that have, I have, I have three sons, five, seven, and nine. Are there some behaviors beyond the conversation my wife and I have, which is important in our home, what advice would you give us on teaching our boys great financial uh, savvy. We don't give them an allowance yet. They're kind of still young to earn money around the house, although we have that occasionally. What advice would you give parents with young children still at the elementary teen age? Yeah, so I don't think that your kids are too young for an allowance, but I do think that when you start it, you should give it with a list of things that you are no longer going to pay for. Okay. Um, the, the purpose of an allowance is to force your kids into a position where they have to make choices about allocating their limited financial resources. So the things that you want on that list are things that they actually want to spend money on. They're the things that they ask you for time and time again. And what you're saying to them is, okay, this is now, this is now your choice. If you want to use your money to buy this thing, that's up to you. You can do it, or you can save it. You can, um, you know, you can you can split the difference. But adults have to make choices about how we use our limited financial resources. We make those choices all the time, and so training our kids is is a big part of that. The other really important thing for children is they have to work. At some point, they have to earn money of their own, and I think the sooner the better. Um, not necessarily chores around the house. They can have a job during the summer. They can have they can babysit. I've seen it in in the eyes of both of my kids that the ten dollars that they earn for babysitting for an hour is so much more valuable than the ten dollars that I give them in an allowance because all of a sudden it is equivalent to a certain part of their time. You know, they understand it. They, they, they get that, and, and they need that lesson. So, Gene, let's move to that 30, 40-year range, you know, uh, the, the big part of the workforce, if you will. Give us some advice on what we should, they should be doing. I wish I was in that category. What they should be doing to have the most exponential return in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, at this age, this is planning time. And, and you should be charting out some goals. What, what do you want in five years? What do you want in 10 years? What do you want in 20 years? And then you can put your money to work in order to achieve those goals. But we're starting to get into our higher earning years at that point. And so making your money do its best work doesn't happen unless you've taken that 
planning step. Jean, what's the average age of retirement in, um, in the U.S.? Do you know? I am not sure, but I do know that, that most people still take Social Security around 62, so I suspect it's around there. And so I'm guessing our 50s, which I'm squarely in, I was 51 a couple of days ago, I'm guessing for a lot of people, not everybody, your 50s are when your kids are kind of just moving into college, not mine, clearly, I was late to the game, but 50s was when you start to see, you can kind of see the light at the end of your mortgage, not me again, mm -hmm. but what advice would you give 50-year-olds that are probably starting to get nervous about their medical expenses and they still got college debt? I'll bet it's a time where we can rationalize that, well, I'm still got my, I still have kids in college, and I'll bet it's a, a crucial decade where we should be asking ourselves some tough questions. What advice would you give that 50, 60-year-old? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it is a crucial decade, and we have to take a look at, are we on track for our own retirement, whatever our retirement is going to be? How have we done in terms of putting aside some money for college for our kids, if that's still ahead of us? What's coming our way as far as the financial support that our parents are likely to need from us? All of those things are, are really important to get a grip on. If you haven't had a discussion with your older parents about whether they will need your financial support, now is absolutely the time. And the reason is that we can borrow for um, college. We can put off our own retirement a little bit. But if our parents need help, we're going to help them. Um, and so preventing surprises like that from coming our way is, is a big favor that we can, can do ourselves. I think a, a good decade before retirement is also a great time to sit down with a financial advisor if you've never done it before. Um, it's a good time to just level set and see if you are on track. And if you are very far off track, it's the time to make some shifts in how you're living in order to seriously amp up your saving and investing. Gene, um, simplify that for us. You know, it's not natural for everyone to know how to get advice, right, on, on, on our financial analysts. Will you demystify that process? You know, a certified financial analyst versus CFP, fee-based versus percent of assets. What advice would you give just to the Scott Millers out there that need to take that first step to go meet with someone, talk about my debt, my assets, my income earning, should my spouse work or not work, when to yep. take Social Security? What's, the, what's a good safe bet for people? So you're looking for a holistic financial advisor, somebody who doesn't just focus on your investments or your taxes or another segment of your financial life, but really can look at the whole thing. And I think a CFP is a really good bet in that scenario. CFP stands for Certified Financial Planner. They are a fiduciary, which means they have to act with your own best interest at heart. You can find them through the Financial Planning Association. You can find them through an organization called NAPFA, which is the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. And it makes sense to me to, um, to ask friends, ask colleagues, if they have people that they've worked with in the past whose names they can give you, set up a couple of meetings, meet with three or four different people, figure out because you're right, planners get paid in a lot of different ways. Some charge a fee, some take a percentage of assets under management, some are still on the older commission model. 
ask how much this relationship will cost you over the course of a year and see if you can get a number that will allow you to compare apples to apples. Ask what that person would do with somebody like you? What sort of a plan do they think is appropriate for a person like you? Um, do a background check on that person uh, using the tools at FINRA. They have a, a, a broker check tool that's very, very easy to use. And then my litmus test for a good planner is in this initial meeting, who's talking? Um, if, if you are doing most of the talking, that is a really good sign. If mm -hmm. they are doing most of the talking, if they're just trying to sell you um, or if they show you a plan that they've already developed, um, they're not listening and taking your personal situation into account. Gene, I think I've heard and read before that one of the biggest causes of divorce, if not the biggest cause, is money issues, money matters, financial stress. What have you seen along your journey, gosh, 30 plus years now, 11 books, what have you seen the healthiest couples, whether they're, they're partnered or they're married or otherwise, what are the healthiest couples doing around the topic of money? They're talking about it. They, they keep an open line of communication. Um, often they have some autonomy. You know, they, they, each of them have the ability to make some financial decisions without asking permission. You know, in my book, I actually have about 12 different ways that couples successfully are managing money from real people examples. And I did that purposefully because I, I'm often asked, you know, is there a magic bullet? Is there some sort of secret sauce? And the answer is no. If it, if it works for you to combine all the money, then that works for you. If it works for you to combine nothing, then that works for you. If it works for you to have a yours, mine, and ours sort of system, then, that, then that's fine. Um, I think that the, the goal is to figure out what works for you. Keep talking about it, even when those conversations get difficult. And then um, close ranks and don't let the outside world weigh in on what you're doing because it, it's really nobody's business but yours and your spouse's. Gene, you spend a fair amount of your time keynote speaking, talking to corporations, working and advising on building cultures. Talk to all the business leaders out there listening and watching today about the impact that people's personal financial stress has on their work performance. Any advice you would give the leaders on, without getting into people's personal business as sure. a leader, something you can do to help your people not, not necessarily bring their financial pain to work, although they'll do that. What, is, what are some tactical tips you might give leaders? Yeah, I think understanding that financial wellness is a big part of the overall wellness of your employees is a really, really important learning. In, in just the last couple of months, I've been to Microsoft, to Pfizer, to HP, to American Airlines, um, and, and have talked to big groups of employees about these financial issues. They've got questions. Um, and, and if you, as the employer, as a trusted source can help step up to answer their questions and make them feel better, then they will be more productive at work. They'll make better use of the um, often very expensive benefits that you are already providing for them. Um, but finance is stressful. Um, your employees are under a tremendous amount of 
financial stress, even if things are going well in their life. You know, happy events can also be financially mm -hmm. stressful. Having a baby, getting married, all of those things can be financially stressful. And um, there is so little in the way of uh, trusted resources out there that that they are looking to you to to help them with this. So so I would say step up. Jean, you also amongst your your duties at the NBC Today Show, and as a, as a mother and a spouse and a consultant and a speaker and a multi bestselling author, you also have been able to cut through what is the podcast clutter, right, in 2019 with Her Money. Talk a bit about your podcast and, and how someone can follow you and types of conversations you have on Her Money. Sure, and, and thanks for asking. So Her Money is my platform. Hermoney.com is, is my website. We publish a couple of newsletters every week. They are free. Um, if you go to hermoney.com slash sign up, you'll start getting this week in your wallet, which is our take on the money news of the week and how it applies to you as well as our weekly Her Money newsletter. Our podcast comes out every week. We have conversations with business leaders, with leaders in the financial space, with entrepreneurs doing interesting things, with financial psychologists who help us dig into how we are managing our money. Um, we, we recently had a show with Charles Duhigg about financial habits and, and how to master yours. We've had conversations with Brene Brown about shame and embarrassment and getting over those things where your, your money is concerned. Um, some of your guests have been our guests, uh, um, Dan Ariely, and, and uh, we've got Seth Godin upcoming. And, and so it's a wonderful um, opportunity for me to do lengthy interviews and, and talk to people who are, are doing interesting work. And our listeners tell us um, that they have been able to really get a grip on their own financial lives just by, just by listening and participating in this regular financial conversation. Gene, I think you've brought a very unique, relatable, safe, practical voice to the what is the world of you know, money advice. Uh, you're one of my favorites. What's next Thank for you? you. I am, um, I'm all in on Her Money and uh, we are expanding what we're doing at hermoney.com. We are um, working to uh, book more guests for the podcast that um, are exciting and, and again, doing interesting work. And uh, I'd love your community to, to join our community. Well, you can have your publicist call us because we're happy to deliver any of our friends that are on the wall behind me. So if any of our guests interest you, I would be delighted to link them up with you. Jean Chatsky, thank Thanks. you for joining us. Your new book, Women With Money, although aimed at women, I have to tell you, it's a great book regardless of your gender. I read it, I learned a lot. My wife and I have talked a lot about money this morning, <laughs> last night. It kind of rules our lives with three young kids, but what a class act you are. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Everybody, pick up a copy of Women With Money from Jean Chatsky. Catch her periodically on the Today Show, and we'll see you back here Next week on On Leadership with a new guest, visit Jean Chatsky at hermoney.com. It's a great resource for you, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us.